I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, and beginning in verse 6, Romans chapter 5, and beginning in verse 6. Uh, Miss Suzanne, I want you to tell Brother Leo that uh, we had a fill-in for him today. Juliet was up there sitting in his seat. I, I see the blonde hair, and then every once in a while she'd pop up and I see her face up there. It's a lot better than this right here. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 6. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 6. And here's what the word of our God says. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word. We ask that you will just draw our attention to what you have to say to us. And Father, I ask that you will be present this morning in your word. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We've been making our way through the book of Romans for several weeks, maybe several months now. But last week we ended with chapter Five in verse uh, verse five, which makes this statement, and I want us just to to read this verse so we can think about what's going on in context and how this really segues nicely or transitions into this next section that we're going to look at. So, if you look at verse five, it says, "Now hope does not disappoint, because of the, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us." So the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And now I want you to see the connection between this and verse 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's a connection here between these two words that are being used, the same word. The love of God has been shed abroad, it's been, it's been poured out. I want us to think about in verse 5, as I talked about last week, that it's not that his love has just been sprinkled, it's been been poured out. So it's just excessive nature, this excessive characterization of the love of God. There's no way that we can measure God's love. It is limitless. It is boundless. It is vast. It is eternal. The love that God has for his people is beyond measure. Now, in verse 5, he speaks about how this love is manifested by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. And and what he demonstrates to that is more of a subjective thing in nature, that as the Holy Spirit resides in us, because he lives within us, we know that God's love has been poured out to us. The Holy Spirit of of God is a gift to us. 
It is by the Spirit that we become regenerated, that we are born again. It is by the Spirit that we are given gifts. It is by the Spirit that we are empowered and that we are enabled to live the Christian life. God's Spirit dwells within us. And because His Spirit dwells within us, that is evidence that God's love has been poured out. Now, the problem with that is, in some ways, if I say it's a problem, is that it's not very concrete. What I mean by that is that when we talk about that we know the demonst- that we know the evidence of God's love is by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Now there's some concreteness to it because we can read the Bible and the Bible tells us that's true, but there's still some subjectivity to it because there's nothing that we can point to, no evidence, no no real demonstration that we can grasp. And so in verse 5, there is more of this subjective nature of God's love. We know God loves us because the Holy Spirit resides within us. So now what Paul is going to do is he's going to move from the subjective to the concrete. That there is actually a way in which God, in time and space, in the context of history, demonstrated that he indeed loves us. There was a point in time, there was a historical act that actually happened 2,000 years ago to show that Christ loves us. That historical act is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the historicity to it. I know that sometimes when we think about that in the context of this culture, when we talk about the, the cross, when we talk about the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that from a secular standpoint, There's not many people that agree with that concept, that it's not really historical, that it's mythological in some aspects. But if you begin to press historians, secular historians, they will acknowledge that there was a man who lived whose name was Jesus of Nazareth. And that this man did indeed cause a lot of disruption within Jerusalem. And yes, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this historical Jesus, did indeed die. They may acknowledge that he died on the cross, but they're not going to acknowledge that three days later that he rose again. But there is a historical reality to the fact that Jesus Christ died. And in this historical reality, it is a real demonstration of God's love. I think we may understand this if we can parallel relationships, if you will. Maybe marriage relationships, or even relationships that you have with family members or or children. It's one thing to tell someone that you love them, but it's another thing to demonstrate it, to show it, both in the way that you respond to them, in what you do for them, and maybe even gifts that you give them. And so all of us who have relationships, whether it's with our spouses or with a, a mom or a dad or or our children, that we can look back and we can say, I know that they love me because this is what they did, A, B, C, and D. And so the same is true when we think about the love of God, that it's not just a subjective reality that we can't really point to, that we can't grasp to. We can actually point to the reality of it. Now, it is true that God demonstrates his love for us in the context of history in a variety of ways, and that he still even today demonstrates his love to us in the way that he blesses us, in the way that he guides us. But the pivotal 
point or the pivotal moment that shows God's love for his people is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God sent his own son, his one and only son, to die on the cross for me and for you. This is the evidence of God's love. So not only does God make us aware of his love for us by pouring out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us, but God objectively and personally demonstrates his love through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross event is historical. It occurred in space and time, and it is the ultimate evidence that God loves his people. The cross also gives proof that we can rejoice and suffer knowing that suffering is productive. And so that's one of the aspects that Paul wants us to understand here is that the tribulations and the trials that we go through is that we're not just suffering or just going through stuff because that's just the way life is. Although there is some truth to that. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is engulfed in sin and is perverse. And as a consequence of it, we are going to suffer. We are going to go through difficult things. But for Christians, we realize that our suffering has a purpose. And that purpose is to produce perseverance and character and hope. It's to shape us and to build us into the people that God has called us to be. And so the cross is evidence of that because it's in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ that his suffering was not for any reason. His suffering was for our sins. His suffering was for our justification, for our reconciliation. His suffering led to his resurrection, and ultimately his exaltation where he now sits at the right hand of God and he reigns and he makes intercession on behalf of his people. So I want us just to focus here on this concept of God's demonstrated love. We can know that God loves us, his people, because we can point to the concrete reality of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us just to think about how Paul brings this out and brings this to bear and really magnifies, if you will, the love of God. How he shows God's love is vast and limitless and boundless in its, in its work. So notice as we begin with verse 6 that there are some descriptions that we find in this text that are descriptions of who we were before we came into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may be some descriptions of some of you here this morning who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, who are not Christians, who are not born-again believers. These are descriptions of all people apart from Jesus Christ and his redeeming work in our life. So in these verses, Paul explains the extent of God's love, the sense of which is shed abroad in our hearts, but it is love that is demonstrated in the death of God's own son. And the love that God has for man and women goes beyond anything that you could ever been or done. Now, if we notice here, as this text begins, it tells us in verse 6 that for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there's a phrase I want us to pick up on before we actually think about the, the people that Christ died for. Now, who we were before we became Christians. And he makes this statement that in due time, that there was a specific time, there was an appointed time, 
there was a fixed time in which Christ died for the ungodly. Now, what this tells us is it tells us that this was not just an accident. That God is not fumbling around trying to figure out how to work everything out in history. That the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden did not catch God by surprise. Everything with, that God does is planned. God is a God who is in control of all things, and he is bringing about his purposes in the context of history. In fact, we find actually in the book of Revelation that the Bible tells us that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So before God brought everything into existence, before he spoke this world into existence, before any of that, God had purposed in himself that his only son was going to die. So there was a time, there was a fixed time, there was an appointed time. And why it was this specific time 2,000 years ago is really anyone's guess. I mean, there are some things that we can say about what was happening in that context of history that made it a great time. But God saw this as the time. He purposed this time that Christ would die on the cross. In fact, we actually see how this is demonstrated in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the right time, when the perfect time, when God's time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law for what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons. So there was a fixed time in history in which God purposed that his son Jesus Christ would die on the cross. So there are no accidents with God. Everything is providential. So it's no accident that you're here this morning. You may be here because this is what you do on Sunday mornings. You may be here because somebody invited you. You may be here because you, you, you think, I saw this sign. But God has brought you here for a specific reason, providentially. So I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe in accident. I believe in God's divine providence. Wherever I am in my life, God has put me there for a specific reason. And it's helpful for us sometimes to ask the question, why am I here? What does God have me to do now? Maybe God has put you there to, for your life to intersect with somebody else that needs to hear about the message of Jesus Christ and his salvation from sin and death. And so there's an appointed time. But I also want just to, to lay this on you very quickly about another time that we need to be aware of. Everything's fixed in God's salvation purposes. So there's another time we find actually in Revelation, Romans chapter 13 in verse 11, it says, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And so what Paul is saying is that the day of final redemption, the day of Christ's coming, that it is time for us to realize that that time is getting near. That there is a fixed time in God's purpose that only he knows, that only God knows that when Christ will come again and when he will receive his people to himself, then the rest who have rejected him, that they will ultimately be judged. So we need to be aware that there is a time. So notice here, there is a specific time, but also what in this time, what did Christ do? Well, he died. And who did he die for? Well, there are basically four descriptions that is given for the people whom 
Christ died for. So the first one we saw in verse 6, those who are without strength. Then we also see in verse 6, those who are ungodly. And then we see in verse 8, those who are um, sinners. And then if we look down, we see in verse 10, those who were enemies. So who did Christ die for? He died for those people who are without strength, those who are ungodly, those who are enemies, and those who are sinners. Now let's just think about what these words mean, independent of one another. Obviously, they're descriptions of the same person. And who is that person? That was me before Christ. That was you before Christ. That may be some of you now who do not have Christ as your Lord and Savior. So notice the first one is those who are without strength. Now, obviously, with all these uh, these descriptions, there are some overlaps in them. I, I do think, and this may be too specific, but I do think that there's an intensification as these descriptions are given. So they start off with without strength, and then it ends with an enemy. So notice the idea without strength. It demonstrates a fragile, how fragile we are as humanity, as members of the fallen world. I think also the idea of without strength means that there is a moral weakness in us. That we have the, that we are incapable of doing any moral good, incapable of doing anything that pleases God. Now, one of the things that we looked at as we went through chapter four that Paul wanted to make very clear to his audience is that you cannot do anything to earn or to achieve your salvation. You have no strength within yourself to make yourself right with God. And he gives the illustration with respect to Abraham. Abraham was justified before the law. Before there was an act of doing, he was justified. He was justified apart from works. And he really emphasizes in that chapter that there is absolutely nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And he made that crystal clear Back in chapter 3, when he said, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So the very aspect of our thinking, the very aspect of our propensity to even seek after God, that it's non-existent. We cannot do that. We do not seek God. God seeks us. And as he seeks us, then we begin to turn to him. Uh, so without strength reflects this idea as we are fragile human beings. There is weakness in us. It also reflects the idea of moral incapability, moral weakness, and also this ability that we have no strength, no power, no ability within ourselves to make ourselves right with God. We also call it ungodly, and we've seen this term in earlier in Romans, in Romans 1 and verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. So the term not only means unlike God, when you're ungodly, you're unlike God, but also instead of loving God, we have rebelled with all of our being against him. Then we're described as sinners, which describes those who have fallen short of God's glory. We saw that back in chapter 3 in verse 23, when uh, the Apostle Paul makes this statement, a verse that we all should know, for all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. That there was a standard. There is a mark that God said, this is the mark that you have to make. If you want to be in relationship with me, this is where your standard is. And we have fallen short in that. In more ways than we can count, in more ways than we can even think about. Even when we think that we do something good. Right? I mean, all of you may be thinking in mind, you know, I, I, I do good things from time to time. But sometimes the reason we do good things is not for the right reasons. And so even though we do those good things because our heart is wrong, that what we did is wrong. And so we are sinners. We have fallen short constantly of that mark. And then to make matters worse, that's why I think there's an intensification that goes here, that we're enemies of God. Now, if you're an enemy of someone, what does that mean? You're a hater of that person. An enemy seeks to go to war with another person, seeks to thwart the purposes of that person. And so we're described as enemies of God. So I think that this final word seems to supersede all of the, all the others. I mean, maybe you're sitting here and saying, well, those aren't too bad. I'm without strength. I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. It could be worse. It is worse. You're an enemy of God. But you may feel like in your own heart, I'm not, I'm not an enemy of God. I don't, I don't hate God. I'm just kind of ambivalent to God. Or I just, it's, it's just okay. But if you are not faithfully following God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a hater of God. You're an enemy of God. God has created you. God has designed you. God has stamped his image in your, in your being. And when you live contrary to God's purposes, you are raising your fist up of, of, of God in defiance and say, I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to do how I want to do. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's an enemy of God. So this is who we are. Now, j- just another word about being an enemy. It really implies a deep-seated hostility and a resentment of his Authority. Now, interestingly enough, enemies is the exact opposite of love. Yet in all of this, in all that we are, in all that we have done, Christ died for us. And Paul uses the word for in this text twice to show that Christ's death was vicarious or it was substitutionary. So if you'll notice there in verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? And then in verse 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, or still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in other words, that Christ died for the ungodly, that he died in the place of the ungodly. That Christ died in the place of sinners. So it was the ungodly, it was the sinners that deserved to be on the cross. But Christ, who was righteous, he was on the cross instead. He was my substitute. He was your substitute. And he died for you. This is the demonstration of God's love. Now, notice also that when we think about you know, that God died, or God in Christ died for us knowing these realities. So, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God did not love Israel because there was something lovable about them. God, God's love is self-generated. God's love is graciously given. Now, in human affairs, our love is not self-generated. 
We always love for a reason, don't we? We love our children. Why? Because they're our children. There's a reason for it. But God's love is self-generated. It's, it's who he is. It's his character. So God's love was shown to Israel, who was the least. There was nothing about them that warranted God to love them. And so for God to demonstrate his greatness and his grace, he chooses the very least to show his glory. So Christ dies for us not because there's something that he sees. You know, Corey's got potential. Or he sees some potential in us. God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, dies for us because this is who he is. He is love. And he demonstrates his love in this way. And now we see this kind of intensification of his love, not only in the fact that he actually died for us, but also when we think about who he died for. And actually, Paul gives an analogy here in verse 7. It says, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So we actually see in this text that there's no comparison to, to God's love. Now, what if at all possible could we compare the love of God to? In human affairs, Paul shows here in verse 7 that it is rare at best for a person to give his life for another. It is only for special people that any person would dare to even think of giving their life. So there's this idea here, the the righteous person, maybe somebody that's respectable. He said it's very rare that you would look at somebody in this church and you might voluntarily give your life to them. That's a respectable person. I really like that person, and I'm going to give my life to that person. And then he said perhaps if you had a closer relationship, then you might actually give your life to that person. Perhaps she would. But notice here the argument Paul's making. Christ didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for good people. He died for those who are without strength, those who are ungodly, those who are sinners, those who are enemies, those people who are not worth dying for. Do you know exactly what it is that we actually deserve? We deserve God's judgment. And if God would judge all of us, all of humanity, God would be a just God. But God is a gracious God, and he's a loving God. And he shows and he demonstrates his glory in his love and in his grace. In fact, we find in John chapter 15 and verse 13, it says, Greater love has no, has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And Jesus demonstrated his love. Now, if you'll notice there in verse 8, there's the, the use of the word uh, he demonstrates. And this is important. And the reason it's important is because the event of the cross is in the past. It actually happened in the past. Christ died. He's not dying. Christ died in the past. His sacrifice was in the past. Yet the fact that it, it occurred remains as present proof of God's love. That's the idea of the word demonstrates. It's in the present tense. He demonstrates, even now, we can know that God loves us because of the cross. It's a timeless act, and it has an effect that will last into eternity forever and ever, where we will praise and glorify the Lamb who was slain for us forever and ever. So we see that God's love is proven to us through the historical act of the cross. But also I want you to notice, as we move on to verses 9 and 10, that we see what it is that God's love to the cross provides. 
What is it that God's love through the cross provides? So look in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his cross. So the effects of the cross do not leave us empty, nor is it merely enough. The reality of the cross is a much more reality. If you'll notice there, he uses that phrase two different times. Much more in verse 9. Much more in verse 10. So two times. In this section, Paul speaks about the effects of the cross as much more. There is an overflowing of God's grace. When you find yourself depressed and fearful that God has abandoned you, let your soul hear these words much more, much more. Wherever you are in the context of your life, whatever you're going through, you can look to the cross and know God loves me. And not only does he love me, but he loves me in this vastness, in this, this boundless way. That's manifested. But there are times in our life, and we've, we've seen that as we've worked through the Psalms in the summer, that the, David felt abandoned and wondered if God ever loved him. And so that's part of the human experience, that as we go through things in life, that that's what we think. We feel like we're, there's nothing like a trial. There's nothing like a difficulty where we feel alone. Even if we're going through something with a person, we still feel like we're by ourselves. But the reality of it is, is that we can look to the cross and the much more quality of it and find that God does indeed love his people and he is there for his people. In, in all actualities, you know, sometimes when we go through things, we want God to take it away from, from us. But, you know, there's an element of when sometimes God says like he did to Paul when he pleaded with God three times. You know, remove this thorn of flesh, and what was the answer? My grace is sufficient for you. We look to the cross. We look to the effects of the cross. We look to our own salvation, how God has saved us by his grace. Is that not enough for us? In fact, it's more than enough, is it not? And that's compounded on the blessing that God still gives us day by day in our own life. So there's just much more quality to it. And, And notice that what he has provided for us, as we see in verse 9, makes clear, you know, having now been justified by his blood. So we've been looking at the idea and the concept of justification, beginning with uh, the latter part of chapter 3, all the way even today for several weeks now, about what it is that justification has to do with our standing before God. Our standing apart from Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, our standing is without strength ungodly, sinners, and enemies, but because of Christ, because of his cross, and as we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now justified. We are no longer without strength, no longer enemies or sinners and ungodly. Now we are God's children. We are righteous. That is our new standing because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we were powerless and godly sinners and enemies, but by the means of the blood of Jesus and his death, we now have peace and we are made children of God. Of course, Paul will go on, and especially in Romans chapter 8, and he will speak about the reality that not only do we have this justification, as we'll see in a little bit, reconciliation, but he also demonstrates how we become joint heirs 
with Christ. Whatever belongs to Christ, which is what? Everything. Everything. We share in that because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then also we see the idea of being reconciled. And so the idea of reconciliation means that there's enmity between us and God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have now been reconciled. And there's an emphasis here in this text of verse 10 of the future aspect to it. Now, whenever we talk about salvation and the Christian life, that it is both past, present, and future. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And so in verse 10, when you get to the end of it, when he says, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's thinking about future aspect. But there, there's, a, there's a greater emphasis here, and it's how much more. Now that we are justified, now that we are in a right standing with God, now that we are no longer enemies and sinners and ungodly without strength, now that we are God's children, how much more will he save us? That now we are his children. And so there's this emphasis in what Christ will do and how ultimately he will save us from judgment. He will glorify our, our lowly, sinful, decaying bottles. He will eradicate sin and death and, and sorrow forever and ever. And this all comes as a consequence of this cross. And then the last aspect of this that we see the response of this. Now that we know that Christ has died for us, that he has demonstrated his love for us, that this love is concrete, and that we're looking at this and we're thinking how unfathomable the love of God is through his son Jesus Christ, that he would love somebody like me, that he would die somebody who doesn't deserve it. And then Paul responds, for, responds to this by saying, and not only that, but we also rejoice. Rejoice. Now some of you may actually have in your translation the word boast. Now, I don't know if you remember, I spent quite a bit of time on this word last week that in my translation is rejoice, but it's actually the word that is commonly translated boast. And this is something that Paul has already said that we do in the hope of glory. If you look back in verse 2 of chapter 5, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And then he goes on and he speaks about how we boast in our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because it leads to making us and shaping us more into the character of God through his son, Jesus Christ. But now in this section, he points out that we boast or we exalt, or we magnify God. We give God all the glory. Why? Because we have now received the reconciliation. Now that word before uh, reconciliation is really important. It's a small word, but I don't want you to lose sight of it. And I hope that your Bible has it. If it does, I want you to underline it when he says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are now at this moment. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, if we repented of our sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received the reconciliation. At one point, we were enmity between God. We were enemies with him. But now we have come together with him. 
Not because of our strength. We have no strength. But because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, there, there, it's kind of interesting how when we start at the end of chapter 3, that it's caught up in justification over and over again. Now, there's another term that describes what it is that God does for us in Christ that relates to our salvation comprehensively. There's various words that are involved in that. So justification relates to our standing with God. He makes us righteous, and it's not our righteousness because we don't have righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself that's applied to our hearts. So when we stand before the judgment seat of God one of these days, he doesn't see the righteousness of Corey because there is no righteousness. The very best that I have to offer is filthy. It's not enough. And so when I stand before God one day in judgment, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, applied to my life. So that's my standing now. I'm justified. Reconciliation is more of a relational term. So I'm now justified, but I'm also reconciled. I've been brought near to him. My relationship is restored. It's a family type term. When you think about couples that have been separated, they're living in two different houses, have two different lives, and all of a sudden, by God's grace, they come together and they're now reconciled and they put their lives together. So that's the idea that's communicated here. We at one time stood at enmity with God, but it's now through the cross that there is now peace with God and us and reconciliation. And this causes our hearts to soar, to know that we are now reconciled to God and we boast in him. We exalt in him. We glorify God. And if you'll notice here in verse 11 that we see, and not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in our ability. We boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have now, now, at this moment, received the reconciliation. All because of Christ and his death on the cross. The love of God is shed abroad. It's poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit indwells within us, we know that God loves us. We can concretely, objectively know that God loves us through his cross. Let's pray together.